0: Good morning. It was two or three years ago I got the notice. It's the notice what everyone fears. It's the notice that causes one heart just about to pound out of your chest. It's frequently the cause of cold sweats, night terrors, screaming and or sobbing uncontrollably, usually both. It was the notice that I wasn't going to be able to renew my driver's license online. <laughs> I was going to actually have to go into the DPS office. Now, after hearing some advice on what day to go, what time to go, which office to go to, I I compiled all this information into a very complicated algorithm and decided when and where I was going to go. I was going to go into the DPS abyss of darkness. Sorry if anybody works in the DPS office. We're going to be honest this morning. Now, when you go to the DPS office, you run into all kinds of people. You first run into the type of person who's wearing really nice clothes, very expensive clothes, maybe a fancy watch, and they've driven up in the, in the parking lot driving a car worth more than my house. You run, you run into the types of folks that uh, they, they pull up in a very barely running vehicle, they're missing their. Hourly wage job trying to deal with their problem. They're literally losing money as they are sitting there waiting You you, you run into kids that are just about to take the driver's test Nervous parent by them side you run into elderly folks that have been driving just about longer than everybody else in the room has been around Everyone there needs rescuing you are just a number in a long line a very very long line and, and no amount of money helps. No status in life makes you move to get out of there any faster. No need wins out. No one knows anyone that will make the go process go any faster. It doesn't matter your race, your creed, your color, your sex, your social status, how much money in the bank. It doesn't even matter why you are there. Everyone has a need that will be helped eventually. Inside their own heads, everyone is screaming, Please let me now. Please, somebody call my number. Everybody has a need at the DPS office. Everyone is stuck. This morning in the book of Acts, we're going to focus on two individuals. We're going to look at a third. uh, Three very different backgrounds. Three very different people. But in one major way, they're exactly the same. And they all had a need. And so if you'll remember where we left our missionaries last week... God had given Paul a vision of a Macedonian man. And so they're on their way, Paul and Silas, to preach the gospel to Macedonia as part of the second missionary journey to the Gentiles. So we're going to pick up in Acts chapter 16, starting in verse 11. So putting out the sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace. And on the day following to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city in the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. And we were staying in this city for some days. And you can see on the map here where they traveled. Uh, essentially, God called them to share the gospel in a particular place. And so they went to where that calling was. After the trip, you see a little trip they took there. They arrived in Philippi. Now, Philippi was a Roman colony, as we just saw here. It's basically, as a Roman colony, that meant a couple of things. They had Roman laws and they had Roman cultures, a Roman culture. This is an extension of Rome. This is Rome in a different location. It was, the significance of this is that we have arrived in the Gentile world. Paul has taken his first trip to Europe. They're in modern-day Greece. Look at verse 13. And on the Sabbath, we went outside of the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who'd assembled. So Paul and Silas, they do what they always do. They, they go to a, uh, when, they go, when they reach a new place, they go to the place, they're looking for the synagogue, essentially. They're looking for those that might be somewhat like-minded, someone that are open to the gospel, and, and, and instead they end up by a riverside. Now, to put this in perspective, if a city had just 10 Jewish men there to put up a synagogue, they were supposed to build a synagogue, they were supposed to have a synagogue, 10, there was no synagogue, meaning there weren't even 10 Jewish men in this city. This is definitely the Gentile world. In the absence of a synagogue, the place was supposed to be, the place of meeting a place of prayer, was supposed to be in open air near the water, which is exactly where they found themselves. Now, I'm guessing not likely where they were expecting, but exactly where God wanted them to be. So they're among Jewish win- women, God-fearing Gentiles of the city, and so they started talking to the m- women, presumably sharing the gospel with them. Look at verse 14. A woman named Lydia... From the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Now Lydia, as it says here, verse 14, was from Thyatira. This, of course, made her a Gentile woman that, as it says here, was a worshipper of God. So she was not a believer in some ancient God. She was not a believer in even the multiple gods of the day. She was among the believers in Yahweh God. She, she believed in the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. She was with other Jewish women, or excuse me, with G- Jewish women, other Gentile believer, or believers in the one God, our God. This was a woman who already, in a sense, was close to God. She had an understanding of the one true God. She's from Thyatira, as we said. This is a city in the nation of Lydia. Now, this is an interesting theory. I think this is, it's, it's somewhat speculation, but I find it fascinating. It's possible that this woman's name was Lydia, not because she was actually call, named Lydia, but because they called her that. That was her nickname because she was from Lydia, which is where Thyatira was. Okay, so what's significant about the kingdom of Lydia? Lydia was a ridiculously wealthy nation. Um, Lydia was probably the nation that gave us the first coined money. Lydia, or excuse me, a king, uh, king Croesus was a king in Lydia, and he was at least part inspiration for the story of King Midas. You know, the guy that everything he touched turned to gold. This is a wealthy nation. It was a, a nation of great wealth. Now, I don't know if all this is true. It's just a a theory, but I find it kind of interesting. I'm working off the theory that Lydia was actually a woman named Lydia, but she was from a nation that had great wealth. And she was a woman of means. She had money. Now, how do we know this? One thing we know to be true about her is, as it says here, she was a dealer of purple fabrics, a dealer of purple cloth. She was a businesswoman. Now, purple cloth is what Thyatira was known for. And because of the rarity of dyed purple cloth, It was restricted by law as to who could wear purple cloth. So basically the only affluent, the big shots in society were able to wear it. And Lydia was wealthy and at least indirectly influential on her culture because of who her clients were as she was dealing the purple fabrics. So she's driving a Cadillac. She obviously had the best clothes. And and she was a member of the Philippi Golf Club. Here's a woman that's close to God. She's wealthy. She's a moral and spiritual person. She's close to understanding who God is. She's reputable, successful. She had a good life. She was church weekly, involved in prayer. And God opened her eyes to see that she had a need. He opened her heart to understand that she had sin in her life and needed a Savior. She had a need. And I love that picture. The Lord opened her heart. So, it, it, it wasn't Paul and Silas's magic words. It wasn't the, the brilliant exposition of scriptures, but it was the Lord that opened her heart. He was moving. And just, it was proof that he was moving just by the fact that Paul and Silas were there, but he was moving in Lydia's heart. Paul and Silas were there to deliver the message, God was doing the work. When Lydia spoke to Paul and Silas, she understood that her closeness, her her spirituality was not enough. She needed the gospel. She needed the work of a Savior, and this changed everything. Because Lydia went from a person who God was a good part of her good life to changing her life when she realized it wasn't enough to be religious, to be spiritual. She needed to be in right relationship with God through Christ. She knew she had a need. She needed Jesus. No one has it all together. Everyone, no matter how how high a status you have reached in this life, everyone needs the gospel. You don't earn salvation by being good, being close to God, being a spiritual person, following all the rules, or even being successful and wealthy. Everyone has a need that only Jesus could answer. And God had made that clear in Lydia's life. I can remember one time overhearing a conversation at a lunch between two men. These men were talking. One man, one man referenced his Christian beliefs. Now, I didn't know the man well. I knew of him. I knew he held a good re- reputation. This is a man who held a doctorate, though I don't know the degree. He's an older gentleman. So he's well-educated, well-dressed, generally respected. And he said something about being a Christian that had absolutely nothing to do with the truth in God's Word. His his definition of being a Christian had nothing to do with the death, resurrection of Jesus Christ, our faith in him. Unfortunately, i got to confess my failure that day. Because I remember sitting there listening to this man thinking, he's too well-educated, well-established, mature, spiritually minded. He didn't need some punk like me to explain the gospel to him. But I was wrong. There are tons of people like us and like i was on that day we think it because we've had a certain amount of success we think that because we've lived a good life we've been close to god that that's enough the reality is no one has it all together no matter how good you've been we've fallen short of god's perfection and we need his grace given through christ's death and resurrection we aren't good enough those around you seemingly have it all together that look like Lydia, they need a Savior too. They need to hear the gospel. They need to receive the gospel. Lydia didn't appear on the surface to have a need. I mean, she pretty much had it all. But what she was missing was a relationship with God through Christ, death and resurrection. She had a need for Christ. Every single one of us has that need. No one has it all together. We're all sinners before a holy God. Charles Haddon Spurgeon once told the story of a minister who was told only to preach to God's people. And according to Spurgeon, the minister replied, Have you placed a mark on them all so that I may know who they are? The point Spurgeon was trying to make is simply that we never know who needs to hear the gospel. We never know who around us needs to hear. And I think that our assumption is regularly that we we, we People have already heard the gospel. Certain people have already heard the gospel. They're close enough to understanding God. They come from a good family. They're at church every single week. They're good, red-blooded Americans. They don't need the gospel. or I mean, We may even think that they've already rejected the gospel, so why should I share it with them again? But everyone needs to hear. No one has it all together. The next part of this passage is brief, but I think it's really cool. Verse 15. And when she and her household have been baptized, she urges us saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Her whole household comes to faith in Jesus. They're baptized. She invites Paul and Silas to stay with her in par- as part of fellowship among believers. Same team. See, the background of these people is really, really different. But the gospel changes everything for them they're on the same team. They act like it. They go stay with her. This is more evidence of what Christ has done in her life. This was real. The people around her could see it. Now, the next story of life change by the name of Jesus in our passage this morning comes from a slave girl who, through some kind of demon possession, she could tell the future. And so the girl was on the opposite end of the spectrum from Lydia in that both of them were spiritually minded, but Lydia was a moral, spiritual person. This, this girl, spiritual matters were a big part of her world because she was demon-possessed. Lydia was wealthy. This slave girl didn't even own herself. She was poor. She was powerless. She was exploited. Well, she's walking around hounding Paul and Silas, saying that these are the servants of the Most High God proclaiming the way to salvation. What's interesting is the slave girl was actually most aware of the truth, even in the midst of being the most troubled. So eventually Paul gets annoyed and he calls the demon out. Look at verse 18. She continued doing this for many days, but Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. No one is too far gone. Not even the demon possessed. The name of Jesus has the power to cast out demons and transform lives forever. Lydia was reached through reason, through logic. The slave girl was reached through the power of a God, a power of God encounter. So, so next, the slave girl's owners—they're not too happy about losing their one psychic hotline, Miss Cleo. And Paul, and they had Paul and Silas thrown into prison. They were accusing them of a breach of peace. They were accusing them of unlawful proselytizing, and just to top it all off, they accused them of being Jewish. Look at verse twenty-three, and they struck them with many blows, and they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having such a command, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet into stocks. So the gates are locked, the doors are locked, and then they're locked into stocks. They're in the back part of the prison, really extra double locked up. Their feet are in stocks. They're in pain. This is a very unpleasant place to be. It seems to be a pretty severe punishment, not exactly fitting their crime. But look at verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas are praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. It's midnight. And Paul and Silas are doing what jailed people do. They're singing and praising and having a worship service. Okay. I acknowledge this is probably not normal, but I think a lot of people pray when they're in jail. That's a different conversation. But they're obviously not put out by their circumstance. The gospel prevails. Now we're introduced to a third character, the Philippian jailer. This guy's spiritually indifferent. Lydia, focused on spiritual matters. The slave girl, for a different reason, but focused on spiritual matters. This guy was a blue-collar guy, punching a clock doing his job he wasn't exactly a top member of society he wasn't attending the socialite high society events of philippi this guy was probably a roman a retired roman soldier rome liked putting their retired soldiers in colonies like philippi because that helped them keep the peace it helped him you know kind of put the culture there and so he he got this job so he's just biding his time He's, probably, he's a, being a former soldier. This guy's a tough guy. He's hardened. He's good at being mean. He understood pain and torture. He's very different from Lydia. He's very different from a slave girl. And in a sense, he was spiritually indifferent. He wasn't paying attention to spiritual matters at all. I mean, after all, he fell asleep when these two believers were singing in his jail in the middle of the night. It wasn't a focus for him. He obviously didn't give a rip about Paul, Silas, or the accusation against them. His job was to guard his prisoners, and he knew how to do it well. Now, as I said, his job was to guard the prisoners. That's pretty much the job of every jailer at every place in the history of time, right? Um, The difference, though, for a Roman jailer is that if a Roman jailer allowed his prisoners to escape, he faced the death penalty. That's right likely to be, uh, death, have the death penalty if he allowed his prisoners to escape. So here we have this earthquake, opens the doors, opens the locks on the chains. Is this a God-caused earthquake? I don't know. I'll let you decide that. But look what happens. The jailer's looking at a situation. He assumes his prisoners have escaped. He's about to let the co- save the court some time, save those who are going to give him the death penalty, the effort, and he's going to go ahead and kill himself right then and there. He's facing the death penalty anyway. Why not get it over with? I'll just take care of this myself, he says. So he's about to run run his sword through himself. And just as he's about to kill himself, save himself time, I guess. Paul speaks the words of life. Look at verse 28. But Paul cried out in a loud voice saying, do not harm yourself for we are all here. I always find it exciting in movies movies and the TV, where, where there's a character that's about to fall off a building. They're about to, you know, let loose of the helicopter. They're hanging on by dear, for dear life. They're about to fall out of the airplane, whatever it is. You've seen the scene. And at the very last second, just before they're about to plunge to their certain death, an arm grump jumps out and grabs them. And the hero saves them. And they're able to pull them to safety. This is Paul's voice in this moment. Just as the jailer is about to end his life, he's hanging on by a thread. It's almost over. Paul cries out, do not harm yourself. We're all here. The jailer faced certain death. But Paul delivered the words that saved the jailer from death. Verse 29, and he, the jailer, called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? God brought this hardened, seen-it-all, tough man to his knees. And trembling with fear, he asked, What must I do to be saved? How did the jailer even know to ask this question? Maybe there was something in Paul and Silas's prayer and, and, and singing earlier that led him to understand that there was a need for salvation. Maybe he'd seen the, the uh, Paul and Silas during the week prior, the few days prior, preaching on the streets about salvation. Maybe he'd heard of or heard the slave girl who was declaring that these men knew the way to salvation. All we know is that God had gotten a hold of this man's heart and was working on his life. He knew he had a need in this moment. A case for the gospel, an argument for the gospel would not have worked on this man like it did for Lydia. An emotional change would not have worked like it did with the slave girl. This, this tough man, this man who'd seen it all, he had to be brought to his knees to understand that these men, Paul and Silas, had something he didn't. Verse 31, they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. Believe. It's that simple. It's the simplicity of grace. You can't get too far away. Not by being too cruel or unclean. Not by being not good enough. You can't get too far away because of your past. And just being indifferent and apathetic, you're not too far away. Believe and be saved. No one is too far gone for the gospel. It seems to be too good to be true, but just believe and be saved. And I love the physical death of this man was halted by Paul's words of life. But this man also faced a spiritual death due to sin. And again, God used Paul to deliver the words of life. He told the jailer to believe in Jesus and you'll be saved. It says they basically explain the gospel more fully to him and his family. Here's a man that had a need. And like many that you work with, you go to school with, folks that you see every single day, they're not, he was not even thinking about his need. And I, and I can't help but wonder if he may have thought simply, I'm better than these other people I see all the time. I mean, let's face it, he spent time with the criminal element, the lowest of the low. It wasn't these Crazy, singing Christians that that found themselves in his jail. He'd spent time in dark places. He was probably feared more than respected. He'd seen some hard times, been through some stuff. He'd seen things that most probably would not even want to see. But no one is too far gone for the gospel. Who do you know that might be deemed to be too far gone? Is it someone close to you? Maybe it's even you. I was thinking the other day, what if cartoons got saved? Now, this isn't my philosophical question. This was a question that was raised in a pretty ridiculous song, sung by a Christian uh, musician, Chris Rice, a number of years ago. Rice goes on to sing about all the different hallelujahs the different cartoons would sing. Now, if you want to hear the actual impressions, you'll have to go hear the recording because I can't do that. But I will share a few with you because they entertain me. You can guess who did, did each one. Yabba-dabba-doo-ya. Hey, boo boo boy Luya. And cowabunga dude Now, at one point he mentions Beavis and that other guy from the MTV show that was pretty crude and inappropriate. You might remember the show. That song simply says, nah, in reference to these two characters getting saved. Now, I had this one opportunity to, to sit down with Chris Rice and ask him a deep, penetrating theological question, a hard question to answer, because I knew that he was an educated man, understood theological, understood God's word. He, he, he gets it. And so I said, Chris, why can't Beavis and that other guy get saved? And if I remember correctly, his immediate response was rolling his eyes. Um, because the, the, the song, the premise of the song is absolutely ridiculous. However, he shrugged and said, I guess you're right. Because in his in understanding, he knew, even though the premise is ridiculous, that no one is too far gone for the power of the cross. The power of the cross is, is powerful enough to save the hardest of hearts, folks in the most difficult of places. No one is too far gone for the gospel. The jailer faced the death penalty, and God brought him back to life. Because of, the sin, all of, because of sin, all of us face that same death penalty. It's not the death penalty before Roman law. It's the death penalty before God's law, because we have broken God's law. We've all sinned against God. We've done something that has broken us away from a holy God who cannot allow sin in his presence. We're outcasts worthy of death, eternal death. That's the punishment for sins. But God, Ephesians 2, but God, because of his love for us and his grace and in his mercy, he's made a way through Christ that we can have a relationship with, with him. Christ, fully God, fully human, did something that none of us have done. He lived a sinless life. He died a death that he didn't deserve, that each and every one of us do deserve. He took our place. He was the sacrifice, the penalty for wrongdoing. But there's more to the story. He did not stay dead. He came out of the grave. He conquered death. He conquered sin. And that same power that raised him out of the grave, it gives us life when we put our faith and trust in him. Where do you stand with him today? No one is too far gone for the gospel. Like these three characters, this is the need we all have. No matter who you are, you need forgiveness for sins. You need the Savior. Look at verse 33. And he took them in at that very hour of the night, and he washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into the house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. There's a couple cool things here. You'll remember that Paul and Silas were beaten before they were thrown into jail. And so they have wounds. And so he takes them and he washes their literal wounds first. And then his wounds caused by sin, his figurative wounds caused by sin, were figuratively washed in baptism. Now we're reminded again here that baptism does not save you. It doesn't save you. But it is the response for someone who's come to faith in Jesus. It's a symbolic washing of sins. It's a symbolic of being brought from death to life, which is what this jailer had just faced. It's also an indication of an association of other believers in fellowship. And that's what's also happening here in this passage. Like Lydia, the jailer invites them into his house. He feeds them. Now, I had somebody catch me after the first service and, and tell me I, I was wrong about what the midnight snack would be because I thought it might be cold pizza. But he said, well, they're in Greece. It's going to be heroes. And I'm like, that makes a lot of sense. So um, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't, that stuck in my mind. So he feeds them something. I don't know what it is, but he feeds them something. Because his responsibility as a jailer was not to keep the prisoners necessarily in the jail. His responsibility as a jailer was to be able to produce the prisoners when the magistrates asked for them. And so he was able to do that even though they were in his home. He treats them as be- in fellowship, as fellow believers, part of God's family because they are. They eat together. They spend time together. Now this whole passage in Acts 16 reminds us that everyone needs the gospel. Maybe you're on the sur- maybe you on the service have appeared to have it all together. Maybe you've come from financial security, a happy home. Maybe life has been pretty good for you. You've not had too many hard times. You've 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 got this thing called life pretty much licked. But in the midst of that, you know that there is something missing. There's an aching deep down that you can't explain. No one has it all together. Everyone needs the gospel. Put your faith in Jesus today. We need to recognize that we aren't good enough, close to God enough, spiritual enough, moral enough, not even wealthy or or influential enough to overcome the sin issue that we have that Jesus has already overcome for us on the cross. On the other hand, perhaps you are certain that everyone looks at you and sees the scars from the hard life you've lived. The pain from every single mark. Maybe you've been to places that you don't want to admit you've gone. You've seen things that you don't even like to think about. No one knows you. No one respects you. And some people walk to the other side of the street or the hallway just to avoid walking close to you. No one is too far gone. Everyone needs the gospel. You can trust Jesus today. You aren't too far gone. Paul himself, the guy delivering the gospel story in this passage, was a guy that was once would have been deemed too far gone. We remember a few weeks ago where Paul was a murderer of Christians, but God's grace was sufficient for him. No one's too far gone. Now I want to raise this challenge as well. Maybe you've been like me. You've dismissed someone of not needing the gospel. Maybe you've thought way too much of yourself and thinking that you get to decide who has it all together or maybe who t- who's too far gone. I know I've done it. In my arrogance, I've looked at someone that God was calling me to share Christ's love with, and I thought, nope, too far gone. Or, nope, no need. They've got it all together. They don't need the gospel. That's not for us to decide. God has given us the gospel he's commanded us to share with others everyone around us the truth is if we look at anyone and think that person is somehow unworthy or doesn't need to hear what Christ has done for us if we've lost hope in anybody no matter where they are in this life then we may have lost what side of what God has already done in our lives we sometimes forget that we are sinners saved by grace It's not because of what we've done. It's not because of how special we've been. It's because of what he's done through Christ. Everyone needs the gospel. How can you be like Paul and Silas and share the words of life with someone who needs to hear them? Jesus was beautiful enough for Lydia. He was powerful enough for a demon-possessed slave girl. And he was real enough for a hardened, tough guy, Philippian jailer. Jesus meets the needs of us all. What is your need today? What is the need of those around you? I remember reading of a man named Brian Welch. Some of y'all might have heard of him. It's a story that comes up pretty frequently. He's a guitarist for a rock band. A band called Corn. I'm sure there's not a lot of Corn listeners in here. Welch is your typical rock star, guy's heavily tattooed, long, dreadlocked hair, wore dark eye makeup. He's, he's not exactly what my mom would call clean cut. He's not high society, he's not the right look. Yet at the same time, on the flip side, he's been a powerful influence on his fans who listened to his music and incidentally made him very wealthy and somewhat famous. So in a sense, he had it all together. He had everything the world had to offer in the midst of not being the most mainstream individual you're ever going to meet. But something became clear in his life. God showed him that he had a need. He was lost and broken. He needed Christ. He gave his life to Christ, and and I got a quote from him here. He says, he put me on earth to have fellowship and intimacy with him. And I'm going to spend as much time as I possibly can spend getting to know him every day. I don't want to waste any time. I've wasted enough time. That's what I'm put on the earth to do, to be intimate with God, get to know him as much as I can. In our passage, the gospel has come to Europe. God has penetrated the hearts of three very different individuals with the gospel. Very different folks. But yet we see how incredibly different they can be, yet very similar in one major way. And that is the picture of the life transformed by the gospel. It changes lives. Rich, poor, young, old, put together, falling apart. Everyone needs the gospel. If you've never put your faith in Him, do it today. Let's pray. Father, we praise you and we thank you for your love for us that when we were too far gone, when we did not have it all together, you sent your son to give his life for us, to pay the price, to redeem us to right relationship with you. And so, Father, I pray for anyone in here that does not know Jesus that that would change today. Be working on their heart. Open their eyes. Lord, if there's anyone in here that is struggling to, to, to see the truth, that the gospel is for everyone, Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes as well. For someone that we need to be praying for, sharing the truth with, Lord, I pray that you would bring that to our attention. Lord, we thank you for what you've done for us. We thank you for giving us life when we had nothing. We thank you for Jesus. and It's in his name we pray. Amen. There'll be prayer partners here at the end of the service. I'd like to invite you to stand and sing this last song of worship.